All right, Revelation chapter 3. We have been looking at the seven messages or messages to seven churches that Jesus gave. And we only got halfway through the letter to the church at Philadelphia last week. The normal format for these letters is Jesus will start off by reminding them of his character, aspects of his character. He'll then move into a commendation if they were doing anything well, um, and then a correction after that if needed, if they were doing anything not well, and then he would give them promises for those who would overcome. And, and so we looked last week at, at the Church of Philadelphia, we began looking at it, and we saw how Jesus had no correction uh, for them. We saw he commended them for three things, their humility, they had a little strength, uh, for their commitment to his word, that they had kept his word, and, and lastly, that they had stayed committed to his ways. They had finished, you know, they were, they were finishing that race. They were, they were staying committed to his ways. They had not denied his name. And because of that, Jesus gave them a special blessing, an open door, a blessing he didn't give to any of these other churches. And as we move down to verse 10 today, we see that Jesus commended the church for something else, a fourth thing, and gave them another blessing because of their faithfulness in that area. And so as we see Jesus remind them of his promise to rescue them from the wrath to come, may we too commit to cling to Jesus and to stay faithful until he returns. So chapter three, I'm gonna read verses seven through nine, and then we'll pick it up in verse 10. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. Jesus reminded them he was the pure one who never makes a mistake, that he was real, the genuine one, and that he was sovereign no matter what was going on around them. He says, now, even though all this is going on around you, I know your works. And he said, behold, I have set before you an open door that no man can shut. And what were their works? For you have a little strength. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. Well, what was going on around them? Persecution, verse nine. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews but are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. This open door, the Jesus was gonna do an awesome work there in Philadelphia. Many were going to get saved and worship alongside them who had previously persecuted them. So they needed to just stay on course with being humble, sticking to the word, and not denying his name. But in verse 10, he says now another commendation. He says, because you have kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which you have, that no man take your crown. So here, Jesus commends them for a fourth thing that they were doing right. They kept the word of his patience. The word there kept, it means to continue to obey orders. They had continued to obey certain orders. What orders? The word, or literally the message, a specific message of his patience, the message of his patience. What's the message of his patience? Well, literally, it means the patience of me. So normally when we look at this word patience, it means to endure. And so a lot of people say, well, they, they had been enduring. But when the Lord is the object of that endurance, it means to cling to the Lord with expectant hope. So it's not just hanging on. It's not just enduring until Jesus comes, but literally it's hanging on to Jesus. So that's the idea. He says, in that you have kept the word of the patience of me, he's saying you have continued to obey the orders I gave you to cling to me with an expectant hope. 
So it's not hanging on, uh, on until Jesus comes. And, you know, there are those who I've seen who are doing that. Let's hunker down, you know, like whenever a hurricane comes to Florida, you know. Let's hunker down until Jesus gets back. Nothing we can do. No, 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 no. He says, hang on to Jesus until I come back. That was his command. It's hanging on to Jesus, remaining faithful as we look for his return. The idea is that we keep on plowing, that our hands stay to the plow even though we have an eye to the sky. That's the idea. And that's the message that Jesus left his disciples with. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, the Great Commission, Jesus said to them, listen, guys, that's, that's my translation. That's not what he said. Jesus came and spoke unto them, and he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. I'm sovereign. I, I have everything. I'm, I'm in charge. You know, I have everything you need. What should we do with that then? Go you, therefore, and the word there, go, means to go out. Go you, therefore, and teach all nations. The word there, teach, means to make disciples. That's the Great Commission. How do we do that? By baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I've commanded you by going. Those three verbs, those three participles modify the main verb, which is to make disciples. We make disciples by going, by baptizing, by teaching. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Amen. That, that Matthew, he said, amen, that's the truth. That's what he says at the end. That's what our business is, you know? We have a task in front of us, you know? This message is not just to hang on till Jesus comes, but the message is to remain faithful as we hang on to him until he comes back. We're looking for his return. This is the message that Paul spoke about the same orders that, that he spoke of that we were given. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses, verse 3, he says that he is, oh, verse 2, he says, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Why? Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He was thankful, grateful that they were continuing to follow their orders, you know, that not just in the patience of hope of Jesus Christ, but in their labor of love, their work of faith. This is not a church that's hunkering down, bunkering down. This is a church that was experiencing deep persecution, heavy persecution, and they were hands to the plow, eyes to the sky. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 5, Paul echoes these words. He says, and the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. That endurance in hope where we're clinging to him. Now, because the Christians in Philadelphia had been faithfully doing that, they were blessed with a reminder of a promise Jesus will keep. Look at what he says. Because you have kept the word of my patience, I also, I in the same way, I have marching orders too. I will also keep you from the hour of temptation that shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. The word there, keep, is the same word in, 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 at the beginning where it says, because you have kept, I will keep. He says, I have marching orders too. And since you've continued to do your part, I will continue to do my part. It's interesting, Jesus uses the same, the same play of words with keep in John 17, right before he's about to be crucified, is what we call his great high priestly prayer, where he says, you know, Father, you've given me these, these, these men to, to, to send out into the world, to teach them and to, you know, to lead them, and they have kept my word. They have, they have done the things I've asked them to do. They've been faithful. They've followed orders. 
And so now, Father, you know, in the same way that they've, you know, kept your word, he says later on down in John 17, verses 11 and 12, he says this. He says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those that you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. He says, I've kept them, and I, I've, I've been faithful. So that's the concept that's here is that they've been faithful to do their part and he makes a promise to them, I will be faithful to do my part. And what was his part? To keep them, uh, uh, I will also keep you from, I will do my part to keep you, the phrase there from means to take you out of and away from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. The phrase there, uh, from, means out of and away from. It doesn't mean in the midst of. It doesn't mean um, separated but still there. It means out of and away from. And what are they going to be taken out of and away from? It says the hour of temptation. A specific time period of the word here, temptation, refers to testing. It means to test something in order to determine its true character. So he is going to take them out of, he's going to keep his promise that he made to them to take them out of and away from a specific time period where, where there's going to be a testing to determine the true character of people. And what is this time period of testing? It's the same time period of Satan's greatest temptation, the great tribulation, because it explains here even further. It says, uh, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. This is a different word. This word here for try, it doesn't mean to test in order to determine the character of something. It means to tempt to sin, to trap. Now that's interesting. Who is it tempting to sin? Who is it trapping? Who is there a testing going on for? Those that dwell upon the earth. Literally, it means those who have made the earth their home. This phrase is used nine times in Revelation, always of unbelievers. Now, there is so much information in this one verse here. I could probably preach four or five sermons on this one verse. It's not new information, but we normally have to piece together the truths that this verse says from other places in Scripture to get them. They're all here condensed in one sentence. So what truths are they? Well, first off, this is one of the clearest explanations that Jesus promised those early believers to rescue them from the great tribulation. One of the earliest explanations, clearest explanations, that Jesus had promised those early believers that he would rescue the church from the great tribulation. Christians who are clinging to Jesus and remain faithful to our task as we look for his return, they need never fear going through the great tribulation. You need to never fear, well, I had a bad day today, or I, you know, I, I still fail sometimes. You never have to fear going through the tribulation. We're going to get to the concept of the rapture. We're going to get to the uh, different views that are out there in the church about the rapture when we get to Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to spend a few weeks on that. Um, and, and let me lay this out beforehand. If you have a different view than, than I have or a different view that is a part of our, you know, doctrine here at the church that what we teach as a whole, it doesn't... I don't agree with you, but it's not a matter of salvation. But 
the ideas conveyed here are, are so crucial because there is a view out there that I do think is extremely dangerous, and it's called the partial tribulation rapture view. The, it's partial rapture view. The idea that only faithful people go or only those who've been purified go. The rest have to stay in the tribulation to be purified. That is a horrible doctrine. That is a, a horrible, fear-filled doctrine. You know, I don't need to be purified. I've already been justified in Christ. One of my favorite lines of that song that we sang, I rise as you are risen, you know, is that one of the verse that says, you know, you know, by faith I've been justified. We don't sing words like that too much in songs these days. We should because it's something we shouldn't forget. By faith I'm justified. No fear of condemnation. Why? Because by faith I'm justified. God makes it just as if I'd never sinned. He seats me in heavenly places in Christ, with Christ Jesus. In Christ, I'm already everything I need to be. Now, I'm being sanctified. I'm in that process of being sanctified, but I'm already justified, and therefore, I don't have to fear these things. Jesus is not going to drop me, you know, because I blow it. He will keep his promise. So that's the first thing this, this teaches us. Jesus did indeed promise his church he would rescue them from the great tribulation. And, and if you, you know, now you say, well, what if I'm not, you know, clinging to Jesus until he comes back? Does that mean I won't go? There's an easy way to fix that. Cling to Jesus. What, what am I saying? What's my point? My, my point is this. I don't, think, I don't think there's a partial rapture theory. I don't think that's true. That's not my point. I don't think Jesus is saying, well, only the people that are clinging to me are going to go. That's not his point. The point is, this is great assurance for those who are. God wants you to have that assurance of your salvation. He wants you to know that you don't have to fear that time. I don't have to fear the Antichrist. You know, when, when this year has been, been crazy, and, and God bless so many people who have just been so terrified. You know, they're worried about, you know, Bill Gates and he's got this vaccine and it's got, you know, the 666 has got four sixes in the name of the vaccine and, you know, I don't want to take the mark of the beast by accident. Listen, 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 listen. If you don't hear anything I say, you never have to fear any of that stuff, okay? You never have to. Don't let anyone make you afraid of that stuff. That's the enemy. Don't let anyone make you afraid of that nonsense, I am my beloved's and he is mine. Jesus said, no man will take me out of, my, out of your, no man can take you out of my hand. No man can pluck you out of my father's hand. You don't have to be afraid of that nonsense. You're his. You don't have to fear that, you know? And that's why he gave us this beautiful promise. He told Philadelphia, don't be afraid. I'm not gonna drop you. You can't take the mark of the beast by accident. We'll talk about that in a second, what that actually is. You can't do it by accident, though. It's not a vaccine. It's not, it's not a social security number. It's not anything like that where all of a sudden you go, oh, well, I'm done for. Don't ever be afraid. Precious, precious brother or sister, he loves you. He's not gonna drop you because you didn't understand something. He keeps his promises. The second thing this teaches us is that the great tribulation is both a test from God and a temptation from the enemy. It's both of those things. Now, 
We cover this topic, this concept in, in Daniel and Ezekiel. We talk about how God has his plan, right? He has his plan and it can't be thwarted by anything, right? His timing, it, it'll happen when he says so. And he laid it out, he laid it out. He laid out, here's the times of the Gentiles. Here's, you know, in Daniel chapter two, here's my plan for Israel. In Daniel chapter nine, the 70 weeks prophecy, here's my plan for the rebirth of the nation of Israel, Ezekiel 37, 38, 36, 37, 38, 39. We covered all those things, that God has this plan and, and nothing can thwart it and it's, it's on time, it's on on task, it's, and it's, it's going strong. But we also talked about how Satan has a plan, the mystery of iniquity, right? And he's not in control of it. And so because he doesn't know when he'll be able to bring it about, he doesn't, he's not in control of when it will happen, he's constantly trying to bring it about, and then the Lord says no, and then we see it go away. And then it rises up again, and then the Lord says no, time's not yet, and then it goes away. The great tribulation is where the Lord finally says all right, it's my plan now to let your plan go through. That's part of my plan. And that's what the great tribulation is, you know? Now, Satan's plan is to tempt mankind to create a utopian society without the Lord. That's his plan. He is his constant temptation to man from the very beginning with the the fruit. The very beginning was God is holding out on you. You don't need him and his ways to be happy. You don't need him and his ways to do life. You don't need him and his ways to have society. And so the whole thought process that he's bringing about with the mystery of iniquity is I'm offering you something where you don't need God and you can have the the, the perfect society. That is his temptation. It's always been his temptation, you know? It's the spirit of Antichrist, this ideology that we don't need the Lord. And that's what he will try to trick man into buying into. He will tempt man to sin. He will seek to trap them in that lie. Now, God, he has his own plan for the tribulation. His plan is to give unbelievers a clear choice, to test them, to see what sort they are. Will you believe or will you reject Will you buy into my plan or will you buy into the enemy's plan? Now, the idea of a perfect world is not a bad idea. The idea of a world without crime, without evil, without sin, without death, you know, with, with, without, you know, without corruption, without greed, with all the things, those are good things. To desire that is a good thing. The Antichrist part of it is we can do it without you, God. That's the Antichrist part of it. And that's where it gets confusing because what mankind is constantly seeming to offer us is this, these ideas that we can have this thing without doing it God's way. And, and that, the problem with the deception, the reason it's deceptive is because it offers something that's good but the wrong way. It offers something that there's something inside of us that says we need that. That's right. That's true. That's good. But it says you can do it on your own. You're good enough, smart enough, and you can handle it. You don't need the Lord in his ways. That's why it is so dangerous, so very dangerous for anyone to buy into ideologies. You know, if if we decide and say, well, what we stand for as Christians are ideologies, 
rather than the whole package, every, all of God's ways, then, then, and we claim that that is God's ways, we have deceived ourselves. We've fallen into the trap. Satan is going to have extremely attractive things that the Antichrist offers people. Peace, you know, harmony, equality, love, all these things. It's why so many of these terms get co-opted in our culture. You know, they get co-opted by groups. They say, well, this is love. This is truth. This is righteousness. You know, this is justice. This is fairness. But when it's not in alignment with God's word, it's just deception. So the problem is, is even though those things are good, humanity is wicked. Wanting those things is good, but because humanity is wicked, it's impossible for us to do it without the Lord. No matter how many safeguards and good ideas and good policies and good procedures we might set up. And the Bible tells us that it will bring, the result will be mankind bringing himself to the brink of destruction in just seven years. Seven years, the Lord's going to say, all right, Satan, you can have your plan, can go forward. And that's all it will take for us to bring ourselves to the point of extinction. So that's Satan's plan. God's plan is to give believers a clear, I mean, give people a clear choice. And that will result in both the greatest revival in history. We're going to see in Revelation chapter 7 that it says these have come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their garments in the blood of the Lamb. And it's an innumerable multitude. It will result in the greatest revival the world has ever seen. But it will also result in the greatest atrocities in all of history because everyone will be forced to finally pick a side. Maybe you shared the gospel with someone and they're not opposed to you and they're not opposed to you believing those things, but they're noncommittal, right? Like, well, I don't know what I think about that, you know? There will be none of I don't know what I think about that in the great tribulation. There will be an angel flying around the earth going, if you take the mark of the beast, you will forfeit all salvation and spend eternity in the lake of fire. That sounds vague. I'm not sure which side to pick. Not sure, you know, if, are, there, are there three sides, four sides? You know, I mean, you know, are there multiple ideas out here, Lord? Are there multiple ways to heaven? There will be no confusion on this. Another angel will go around going, Babylon has fallen. Babylon the Great has fallen. Don't trust in it because it's going down, man. I wonder if we should follow the Antichrist. There won't be no confusion. You will have to pick a side. And when someone picks a side, it will be very clear what they're doing. They will be not just, well, I guess there's this vaccine out there. Maybe it'll help. And oh, dear God, I've taken the mark of the beast. No, they will be signing up for this going, I want to signify my rebellion against the God of creation. I do not want his kingdom. I do not want his king. I want you to be my king. And I will prove it by taking your mark and bowing down before your idol. That's the mark of the beast. (laughs) It cannot be taken by mistake. It is a clear choice that someone is deciding, I don't want your kingdom. Like what we pray, we're supposed to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Take what's going on there, perfection, and bring it here. The exact opposite will be the prayer of those who take the mark of the beast. They will say, 
I don't want your kingdom. Leave me alone. Stay out of my life. I don't love you. I don't trust you. I don't think you know what's best, and I refuse to follow you. I refuse to submit, and I will shake my fist at you to my dying day. Clarity. (laughs) That's what the Lord's purpose for the tribulation is, to give everyone that last chance with clarity, with no confusion, to make a choice before the kingdom comes. Now, the third truth we understand here is when we look at that plan, both of these tests are clearly for unbelievers, right? You know, whether it's a test to determine what the character is of an individual, whether they will repent or not, or a temptation to sin, you know, to be be that rebel and to reject the Lord eternally, Those are tests for unbelievers. Those, it says, who dwell upon the earth. Those who have made the earth their home. That is not who we are, guys. This world is not our home. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 tells us where our citizenship is. Philippians 3.20. It says... King James says, for our conversation is in heaven. But the word conversation literally means citizenship. For our citizenship is in heaven. The writer of the book of Hebrews said, we are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, not one here. You know, we are part of a, 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 you know, a wonderful country here. I love being in the United States of America. I love the fact that Tuesday I get to vote. I've never missed an election, and I can't imagine I ever will. I'm glad for that freedom. I'm glad for that right. But it's not my home. I love the the beautiful life I have here, but it is not my home. I'm looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. My citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, from heaven who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. When Jesus comes to rule and reign, let me tell you something, you don't get a vote. You don't get a vote. This is no democracy. This is he will rule with a rod of iron. It is a blessed dictatorship. And I am so glad for that. Because like I got my ballot, you know, like a month ago and I started looking at this stuff and you know what I have to look for? I have to look for where they're trying to trick me into thinking it means something it doesn't. I, I never go to the polling station ignorant. I go having researched these things. I look up the judges to see what they, you know, what they rendered in decisions so I can know, you know, if they are, these are good people or not good people, you know. I do those things, but even with all that research I try to do to study these amendments, you know, Sometimes you get there and you think you know what you're doing, you vote, and then you find out later on it, it meant something completely different. I am so thankful that during the, during the millennial reign of Christ, no one has to count on me getting that right. Or you right, getting it right. I'm so grateful that all of that will be taken out of my hands. And Lord would just go, this is right, and we will all go, amen, or be crushed. Righteousness will cover the earth like water covers the seas. We don't even know what that looks like. And that same ability that Jesus has to subdue all things to himself, 
he's going to change this into something glorious. That's where my citizenship is. I mean, I work hard. I, I you know, want the best for my family. You know, I wanna, want them to have a good life, good careers, all those types of things, but that's not the end goal. Whenever I might better myself here, that's all gonna burn. And when I stand before him, this will be changed. And I will be in complete submission to him. That's what I'm looking forward to. So, that's our calling. That's our purpose. So when you add in God's plans for the nation of Israel in the Great Tribulation, as we outlined in Daniel and Ezekiel, all of God's plans, both the ones he allows Satan to bring about and the ones he has in store, they're all for those who don't believe when the Great Tribulation starts. They're all for unbelievers. Now, that can't be possible if the church is in the Great Tribulation because then we serve no purpose. That can't be possible if we're there. God doesn't create anything without purpose. The Bible says he doesn't do anything without purpose. So if everything that God plans for regarding the great tribulation is toward unbelievers, what purpose would we have there? None. I hear some people say, well, you know, this is a time to purify the church. Nowhere in the scripture do we find that the great tribulation is a time to test or purify the church. Never, never. The consistent teaching of scripture is that we are rescued from this time of testing for unbelievers. In Romans chapter five, verse eight, I believe it says, you know, much more having been justified by faith, we are saved from wrath through him. That's what it says. Those who have already been justified, we're rescued from a future faith. What, we're saved? I thought I'm already saved. Yes, you're justified and you're being sanctified, but you're also gonna be rescued from a lot of other things. Our salvation, Paul, Paul said, is now nearer than we thought. What do you mean our salvation is nearer than we thought? I thought you're already saved, Paul. Yes, that's just one aspect of our salvation. There's multiple things we're rescued from and this is one of them. Now, having given these two blessings for their faithfulness, Jesus tells them what to do moving forward. Verse 11, behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which you have that no man take your crown. The word there quickly means suddenly and unexpected. He doesn't say, hey, I'll be here in a few hours. That's not his point. His point is, when I come, it will be sudden and unexpected. Why is that important? It's important because of the doctrine of imminency. The idea that Jesus can come back at any moment. There are no signs to look for to get more ready for the Lord's return. You know, frequently people ask me and they'll say, hey, you see this is going on. Does that mean, you know, does that mean Jesus is coming back soon? And I know they're excited. That's good to be excited. You know, but, but I always answer just, I say yes, <laughs> no matter what it is, because it's always been yes. The answer has always been Jesus is coming back soon. He's always been coming back soon. Because his return is imminent. There's nothing we're waiting for to happen for the Lord's return. So if that was true in 95 AD, it's still true today, right? Behold, he says, I come quickly, suddenly, and unexpected. Hold that fast which you have that no man take your crown. The phrase there, hold fast, it, it's kind of a play on the words where he said, because you have kept the word of my patience. It means hold fast, you keep on clinging to, retain what you have. And what did they have? A little strength, their humility. 
They kept his word. They had an emphasis on scripture. They had not denied his name. They had persevered. And they had kept the word of his patience. They were clinging to Jesus while they plowed the fields. That's what he says hold on to. That's what he says just you need to keep clinging to that. That no man take your crown. Now, we read that and that's a little ominous, isn't it? No man take your crown. What does it mean someone might take my crown? Well, commentators disagree on whether this is a reference to the parable of the talents. Remember the parable of the talents where, you know, one was given five, I think the other one was given two, and the other one was given one. I might have gotten the numbers wrong, but the idea is the guy who had five came back and he said, you know, master, you gave me five, and with the five, I I made ten. And he says to him, hey, you've been faithful over a few things, enter into the joy of the Lord, I'll make you faithful over many things. You know, a rule over ten cities, another one says. Then the other guy comes in, he says, I took my two and I made five or four or something. I, again, I might get the numbers wrong, but the idea is he, was, you know, took, he had made more from what the Lord gave him and he said, ah, oh, you've been faithful over a few things. You know, enter into the joy of your Lord, I'll make you faithful over much, rule out over five cities. And then, of course, the guy comes in who had been given the one talent and he goes, Lord, I knew that you were a harsh ruler, you know, that, and that you, you, know, you reaped where you hadn't sown. I wanted to make sure I didn't blow this. You know, I didn't mess this up. And so I took it and I buried it and here it is, just as you gave it to me. And he said, you wicked servant. You knew what kind of master I was and yet you didn't do anything with what I gave you? Take that one and give it to him who has 10. And then the servants, they say to the master, they said, well, he already has 10. And the Lord said, yes, that's right. And, you know, he who only has few or little will be taken, what he has will be taken from him and given to him who has, you know, much. So some people say, well, that's what that's referring to, that, you know, when we're not faithful, we lose a reward and someone else gets it. Um, Some commentators say that this is referring to Paul's warning in Colossians 3.18 where he said, let no man beguile you your reward. The word beguile means to to trick you, you know, uh, through false teaching that he actually takes away your reward, Um, you know, and and then you just lose it. Um, Which one of those two is it? I have no clue. I just know I don't want either of those things to happen to me. I don't know what it is, but I want to make sure that I'm clinging to what I have, that I stay humble, that I'm sticking to the word of God, that I'm sticking to the way Jesus does things. I'm not denying his name, and that I'm, I got my hands to the plow, but my eyes are to the sky, you know? Now, yes, I'm going to vote on Tuesday. They keep calling. I'm sure I'm the only one who's experiencing that. Hi, this is George. Have you voted yet? Yes, George. You know, what's really fascinating to me is Paul said he had done this a different way. These exact four things that Philadelphia was doing, Paul said he had done them at the end of his life. He said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but here's number four, unto all them who love his appearing. All them who love his appearing. He said, I've been doing that. You know? I have fought a good fight. What's the good fight? The right fight. Not denying his name. Keeping our eyes on the right thing. He says, you know, I have kept the faith. Anytime you see the word the before faith and it's not in italics, it's referring to the body of doctrine in scripture. He says, I have finished my race. You know, he had a little strength. And he was clinging to Jesus while he plowed the fields, being faithful with his eyes to the sky, looking for his return. And Paul said, because of that, my reward, my crown is waiting for me. So 
Stay humble. You have a little strength. Stay there. Keep with the word of God. You know, don't deny his name. Keep with his way of doing things. Fight his fight. And long for his return as you faithfully plow the fields. Are you doing that? No one will take your crown if you are. Well, verses 12 and 13, here we see Jesus' promise to overcomers. Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. The word overcomer there, we've already talked about it with every other church. It's the one who's trusted Jesus as Savior and is following him. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, I think it's important to differentiate from this person who is not following him. You know, because for that person, this is not meant to to give you assurance. This is meant to challenge you, you know? I had a pastor at Bible college. I loved him. He was a great teacher. And he said, listen, when you get to the comforting verses, teach them comforting. And when you get to the scary ones, teach them scary. You know, when someone comes to talk to me and they're not walking with the Lord, I don't give them assurance of their salvation. I tell them to repent because that's what they need to do at that moment in time. You know, the the Lord allows us to feel uncomfortable when we're not walking with him because he wants us to change, (laughs) right? He wants us to get right. He wants us to get in the place where we can receive that assurance. So when he says, when I say you're an overcomer, someone who's not just trusted Jesus, but's also following him, I'm not saying that you're saved by your works or you're saved by following him. That's not the point. The point is these promises are not someone that can be claimed by someone who's living in sin. You say, yeah, but I got my get out of jail free card. I got saved, you know, 34 years ago. Great, now live it. Now walk with him, you know. Live like someone who is saved. Walk worthy of the station you've been given in Christ. So, you know, if you, you're offended by that when I say that today, my, my word to you is repent. You know, repent and start following Jesus and then these promises are yours. But if you are someone who's trusted Jesus as Savior and you're following him, this is for you. He says, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God and you will go out, no more out. What does that mean? Pillar doesn't sound quite exciting. It sounds about as exciting as sitting on a cloud with a harp. Well, one Roman historian said this about Philadelphia. He said, Philadelphia has not even its walls unimpaired, but daily they are shaken in some way and gaps are made in them. Remember, I told you last week that Philadelphia was wrecked by a massive earthquake in 17 AD, and it, it constantly, for years later, it was, had these tremors that were constantly a problem. The people were consistently fleeing to the open country so they wouldn't get harmed by these quakes, and then they'd return to rebuild what was destroyed. Listen, Christians never need worry about fleeing or rebuilding in heaven, amen? You're rock solid there. You don't ever have to worry and go, am I gonna blow it? It's probably one of the biggest fears I hear believers come to me as a pastor and they say, Pastor Will, I know it says we're gonna be perfect in heaven, we're never gonna sin, whatever, but I, I know I'll find a way to mess it up. No, you won't. He's gonna make you a pillar in the temple of his God. You'll be a steadfast. There'll be no running. You know, you're gonna go no more out. You're not gonna have to flee. There's no danger to you then. You know, Jesus, he's gonna give you a new body. He's gonna change your vile body into a new one. And with the same ability he has to cause everyone to submit to him, he's gonna put that ability in your new body that you will never, ever fail, sin, be broken again. Isn't that an awesome promise? Isn't that the good thing to know? All the things you might struggle with here, all the ups and downs you might have here, you won't have them there. You'll be whole again. Secondly, he makes this promise. 
And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of the heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. Now, we'll cover the new Jerusalem later in the book of Revelation, so I don't want to go into too much detail. But the new Jerusalem is the city that we will call home during the thousand-year reign of Christ. The Bible says we'll go out and we'll come in. We'll be ruling and reigning with Christ Wherever you're serving the Lord on the earth during the millennium, that will not be your home. The New Jerusalem will be our home. It's where we will all live. That's the place where we will call our, our P.O. box, you know. That will be our home as, as we are worshiping him. The light of the Lord will light it all the time. It's going to be awesome. So he's going to write the name of his God, and the Father. He's going to write, you know, his name on us, and he's going to write on us the name of this city. What does that mean? Well, the city of Philadelphia honored its best citizens by inscribing their names on the pillars of its temples. Uh, The Christians there, I doubt, were on the pillars of these pagan temples, their names. They may not have been heroes to the city, but Jesus will give them an inscription that will last for an eternity. He says that they won't be on a pillar. It will be far more intimate than that. It will be on our very person eternal, close, so that we'll never forget it. You know, in Isaiah 49, 14 through 16, the people cried out in verse 14. They said, oh, the Lord's forsaken us. He's abandoned us. We've gone too far. And the Lord said, responded, he said, can a mother forget her nursing child? And the obvious answer to that is, that's like a 99.9% chance a mother's never going to get for a nursing child. He says, yeah, that might happen, but I will never forget you. Because I have inscribed you in the palms of my hands. Your walls, the walls of your city are ever before me. I'll never forget you. Now, Jesus did the same thing for us with the nails on the cross. This is for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despised the shame. He has graven us in the palms of his hands, inscribed us. Well, just as he never forgets us, these inscriptions upon our eternal being remind us that he is ours just as much as we are his. Isn't that awesome? He is ours just as much as we are his. Isn't that what the bride says in the Song of Solomon? I am my beloved's, right? But what else does she say? He is mine. Isn't that crazy? I am my beloved. That makes sense. He's the sovereign God of the universe. He's the Lord of lords, the King of kings. Makes sense. If he loves me and he wants me, that he could have me. True. But he is also mine. He is mine as well. Isn't God's grace amazing? He is not ashamed to call us brethren, Hebrews says. He delights in the fact that he is ours, not just that we are his. And that promise is for you. Verse 13, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. What it says to Calvary Chapel, Orlando, you. So my question is, are you listening? Are you listening? You know, in Luke chapter 9, 62, we read it in our scripture reading. Someone came to Jesus and said, hey, I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. But let me first go bid them farewell, which are, at home in my house. And that phrase, to bid them farewell, it's a Jewish idiom for let me go set my stuff in a fair so that when I, since I'm leaving, when I come back, everything will be where I left it. 
In other words, I'd like to do this for a little while, but I have a higher aim than following you. I have a more important cause than following you. And Jesus said this to that, or a response to that. He said, no man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. The guy wasn't afraid of doing the Lord's work. He wanted to do the Lord's work. Doing God's work is a given for being a Christian. We all have a hope of our calling. We all have a place. Every single one of you, if you are born again today, you're a part of the church of Jesus Christ. You are important. We need you. You need us. That's why you're stuck with me. We need you. You need us. We need each other. All of us have a place. Jesus didn't correct the man because he wanted to plow. He corrected the man because where he was looking while desiring to plow. Our eyes should not be solely on our work, nor should it be looking back to what we're missing out on by sacrificing to serve the Lord. Our eyes need to be looking to the sky, remembering why we do what we do. Why do we do what we do? It's because the one who loved us first is coming back for us. It's because the promise of being with him far exceeds anything we could build here on earth. That's why. Listen, we can get caught up in doing this stuff, you know. You can make ministry your God. You can make that your primary goal. You can make your primary goal building something else. Could be a good thing. That's why the Antichrist will deceive so many. There'll be many out there thinking they're building a good thing. Jesus says, my relationship with you, the closeness I have with you is far more important than all of that. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, let's remember why we do what we do. Let's remember why you know, we try to be faithful as parents, why we try to share the gospel, why we try to live a certain way, why we have certain standards. Let's remember the love that first drew us to him, the love that could have held on to heaven, could have looked at all the privileges of deity as the thing to be held on to, the most important thing. And remember that he said, no, it's not the most important thing. I love them more, and I don't want them to perish. So, I will lay down some of those godly privileges. Jesus could have taken them up at any moment. I mean, he could have, at any moment, we see him do that sometimes when he knows things he can't naturally know, that a man could never naturally know, could do things a man could never naturally do. But Jesus stepped out of eternity, stepped out of heaven into time and space, took a body upon himself, all out of love for us. Why do we do what we do? Because we love him because he first loved us. That's why we do what we do. Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? That's where it starts. Feed my sheep. Let's remember his love that first drew us to him and let's remember and reflect on our love for him and our, our love for one another because that's what unites us this morning. You know, I don't know what's going to happen on Tuesday. If I did, I'd be rich. Because one of them would pay me to tell them how to make it happen. Let me tell you this. You'll still be his. And everyone else here is his will still be your brother and sister in Christ. 
that bond that we have to Christ and to one another is far greater than whatever differences or disagreements might be had over an election. So as we come through this interesting week, you know, let's pray for peace. Pray that there's no unrest, there's no wickedness that's going on. Let's pray that God would allow us to live peaceable lives so that we can continue to preach the gospel, live godly, right? That's what Jesus, through the, Paul, told us to pray. Let's remember his love for us, our love for him, and our love for one another. Lord, we give you this time now to remember you. You told us, do this in remembrance of me. We give this time now to remember you, the great love that brought you here, and to recommit ourselves to being those who will plow, Lord, who will have our hands to the plow, but with an eye to the sky, knowing that even as we build and we plow, we plant, we water, we do all the work that you've called us to do, the place that you have given us, that our hope is in the fact that someday you're coming to rescue us from it all and that we will then be before you and present before you what we did with our lives, receive from you these precious rewards and spend eternity with our beloved and with one another. Lord, we recommit to you this morning to do that, to hold fast to that thing. Lord, that we might indeed, with Paul, receive that beautiful crown. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen.